Welcome to the Deep Tech Show. In this podcast, your host Edmar Ferreira will be joined by expert guests as they dive into the world of deep tech. We are telling the stories of the heroes who are taking real risks to give us a future of flying cars, virtual reality, robots, and space exploration. Enjoy the show. Today's guest is Hung Wang Chong, CEO and founder of Cortical Labs. He helps set the vision and build teams to deliver the world's first biohybrid computing platform that leverages the developments in synthetic biology and artificial intelligence. Hello, welcome to the Deep Tech Show. Today I'm here with Han, and we're going to talk about Cortical Labs, one of the most interesting stars that I haven't seen this year. And Ron, take us to the future, what the future looks like when you guys are widely successful. Yeah, uh, so thanks for inviting me on the show, Adma. You know, it's uh, it's always great to talk about our technology and explain a little bit more about what we are and where we're going. So to answer your question, what we think a successful future for us would be essentially developing a base platform technology that will allow researchers, engineers, developers to have a very low-cost and accessible way to program these neurons via you know, the tools that they're really familiar with. So to me, really, what we've done is just scratch the surface or, you know, the tip of the iceberg by revealing that you can actually get these neurons um, outside of a body to actually do anything intelligent. Now, the next question is, where are we going to go with this? And I think this is really something that will really require the entire community to come along with us, where, for instance, you know, exploring various different verticals about where a real-time autonomy would be useful, I think, is, is something that we would like to, to see uh, happen in the future. Tell us a little bit about what stage you guys are today with the technology. Yeah, so we are a, I guess, pre-seed company. We've uh, spent the last two years really trying to prove without reasonable, you know, uh, beyond reasonable doubt that the effect that we're seeing when our neurons are playing the game of Pong is truly an effect that is happening because of a learning process as opposed to some sort of data mining or some sort of, you know, mining for, for signal and a noise thing. That has been our core focus for the last two years. And we were very uh, happy that, to sort of announce this when we put our preprint out in December last year. So currently, uh, you know, we've only raised about a total of 1.6 million US dollars, which is, you know, in, in, in most comparisons, quite quite a small amount for an AI company, but I think, you know, it just goes to the testament about how capital efficient and how, you know, focused the team is. And, uh, you know, we, we are looking to now start to expand out the team. So we have seven of us at the moment into a little bit more of a, a more fully fledged team, including, uh, you know, developer evangelists and be business development specialists as well to try to get more partners on board to try to, to build using this technology. And the, the core focus for us going forward is actually the uh, scalability of this technology to allow people outside of the company to actually experience these neurons, regardless of wherever they may be in the world. Yeah, I have so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just so interesting thing. So uh, first, let's let's yeah. see if I understand correctly what you guys achieved. So yep. you were able to get some neurons outside like a uh, body. And then you are able yep. to use them as we would do with a neural network in the computer, but it's a living one. Like you could communicate with Correct. it 
put input yep. and get output out of living real neurons. Correct? Yep. That's right. Yeah. Oh, this is this is really exciting. Yeah. So how long does it survive and how how we make it even like alive for doing that? Like to to answer your question, I'll start with the the first one first. How do we the second one first? How do we get these neurons? So there are two sources that we started out with and now we've actually only just you know, decided we we're going to go with the human uh, side of it. But we started out with mice neurons, and, and these are embryonic mice. So what we do is we, we get a, a pregnant mouse, about 10 days of gestation. We sacrifice the mouse, and we extract the embryos from the mother mouse. And then we then remove the brains, and we disassociate. So what, we, what that means is that we shake the neurons, sorry, the brain, in a special solution that, that causes the, the neurons to separate out. But they're, so they still remain alive, but they're no longer in their original structure. And then we take those neurons and we plate them on the chip. And uh, the other source that we've uh, started to experiment, we, we started to experiment a bit later, was using human stem cells. So these are adult pluripotent stem cells, so there, no embryos were, were you know, used in this one. And it's, it's quite fascinating. So you can actually take you know, living tissue, like blood, for instance, is the one that we use at the moment, or skin cells. And through a process um, using, you know, various uh, chemicals and growth factors, we can actually push neurons back, sorry, push these uh, uh, cells back into a, a sort of pluripotent stem cell uh, state. So, you know, being a pluripotent stem cell, you could actually make them into any kind of uh, cell line. So you can make them into heart cells, you know, kidney cells, uh, lung cells, even brain cells, right? So this is what we've started to do where we take those pluripotent stem cells and turn them into, into brain cells. Then you can do this by two methods. One, using uh, chemical growth factors, um, or you can actually use a, a viral-induced factor. So you can actually use a, a virus to reprogram the gene expression of these stem cells to push them to become neurons. So that's how we get our, our, our cell material, our biological material. And then you, once you plate them down in this dish, you actually uh, then uh, immerse them in a fluid. So this fluid is you know typical for, for cell culture media, and it contains the electrolytes, the nutrients, and a, you know, and a bunch of chemical buffers to prevent things like pH from fluctuating too high and too low. And, you, you know, we keep them in an incubator. So that keeps the, uh, the temperature steady at 37.5 degrees Celsius, very similar to the human body. And we, we also keep it sort of uh, sterile in a very sterile environment because these, these neurons don't actually have a immune system to fight off any infections. So if you actually do this quite quite rigorously you could actually keep these neurons alive for years it is labor intensive and it is expensive so we have been working on a way to actually automate a lot of this process by building sort of a, a perfusion circuit for like artificial life support system outside of a the body or b outside of a, a incubator laboratory setting so in order to use a technology like that so this type of tools would be necessary right you need to have like some way for people to maintain those neurons alive in other environments to be able to build any type of thing with this tech. This, this is where you are heading now? Yeah, so essentially, there are actually three pillars to what we do. I'm just going to share with, I guess, I'm gonna, let me see if I can share some uh, screenshots um, here. Um, here we go. So this is a visual, light, visual representation of like the three core pillars of what we do at Cortical Labs. You know, the one I just explained to you is keeping the cells alive and healthy. The other sort of side pillar is this getting information in and out. So we are working on 
uh, uh, novel methods to encode, decode information from the computer to the neurons and vice versa. We're working on a new multi-electrode array system as well that can potentially also uh, be more flexible in its encoding scheme. <clears throat> but the most important thing I think for us is shaping behavior, which is determining the, the levers that will um, push these neurons into doing particular work for us and also discouraging them from doing the things that we don't want them to do. So that's the training part, the intelligence bit. So you need all these three things in order to get, it, get this to work. How are you connecting with the neurons now? now? Like how they're connecting the computer to, to the neurons right now? Do, do you have like a chip design? Do you have like electrodes to like a battery dish? Like how, how yeah. it's like how the overall system? So great question. So right now we're using a, a, a chip that's been developed by a Swiss manufacturer called Maxwell Biosystems, and it's a CMOS-based chip. So the benefit of this uh, device is that it's 22,000 electrodes, which gives you a very high resolution. You can read from 10, 24 of them at any one time. It has a drawback in the sense that it's the stimulation unit is, is much weaker. It doesn't have as high resolution for the stimulation points. And the reason why this is a problem for us is because, and also I think not really, it's a bit of a problem for us, but also something that no one has ever tackled is the feeding of information into these neurons has never been done before. I think we're pretty much the only group in the world that has actually a, also successfully done this. And there are tremendous implications when we you know, start doing our next sort of research phase, which is you know, to look at how do we better encode the information in and, uh, into the cells, because that will allow for actual neural thought inceptions, right? Because that's, that's what it is, right? Writing into, into these neurons. So far, most of the industry has been focused on reading out. So, you know, BCIs like Neuralink, uh, BlackRock, and, and a whole bunch of these guys are mostly interested in reading signals from the motor cortex to move, say, a, a cursor or robot arm or something like that. And I, I think that's actually a, 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 a easier problem to solve then actually, how do you encode information to, to actually, uh, you know, write into a neural culture? So I think reading is easier than writing uh, in this sense. But yes, yeah, so th there is this chip that we use and you can actually, so here's a scanning electron microscopy image of what it looks like. So this is 20 microns. This uh, false coloring is actually what the surface of the chip looks like, um, this pink area here. And then right on top of here, you can actually see the, these are neurons. The neurons are going right on top of the actual chip itself. So that's one image. Here's another one, which, which is even more zoomed in. So this is 10 microns. And you'll see the level of detail of the integration between the biological and the, the silicon. So here you can see an axon running across. But with all these tiny ones, these are all synapses. So, sorry, dendrites. And between the dendrites, there are all these millions of synapses that are all connecting with one another. So you'll have electrical activity transmitting across, you know, these uh, uh, neural networks and, you know, and chemicals diffusing between their sort of uh, uh, gap junctions in the synapses. And because they're sitting on a bed of electrodes, you can actually read the electrical activity as it's flowing through and also provide a stimulation on top of them. So, yeah, this is the way we have the read-write into this biological system. What's the, like, the data throughput you have of input and output? Like, how do you encode it? to go through the neurons and how you decode it back to, to data? Like how much data can you put in a system like this right now? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the problem that, you know, we have, <clears throat> as I mentioned before, was writing information. So 
there's only eight different sort of simulation channels that we can use. And each, what it means is that we can only vary the frequency. We can only have eight different frequencies, so to speak. And the area that we can actually stimulate this is much larger. So there's large, there's less resolution that we can do with that. So the thing to think about is that this is actually an analog system, right? It's, we, although we are controlling the system using a computer and it's digital neurons, you and I and everything like a dog or a bird or a cat, we're all analog systems. And so it is an interesting question of like, what is a data? What is the information thoroughport, right? And that really depends on what your, how well your system is, is designed to interface. What's your sampling rate? How, you know, how fast are you sampling? What, what are your, what are the parameters for, for frequency and so forth, right? So this is, this is also a really interesting and deep question that we need to sort of solve, which is how do we bridge this analog digital divide? Because um, I think this is something that's not quite been resolved yet, even with digital systems, right, that operate in the real world. But to answer your question, so this is a, a visualizer, and you can actually check it out on, uh, on your own browser. So spikestream.corticallabs.com. It's a WebGL uh, visualization I, that I built, and it's a data representation of the electrical activity on the surface of the chip. So this uh, visualization has about 22,000 electrodes, each representing, sorry, 22,000 tiles, each representing an electrode on that chip. And as you can see, we actually encode the information. It's, it's, it's an encoding scheme that we came up with. It's not necessarily the best, but it works after several attempts. And what we did was we said, we're going to encode topologically a top region here to say where the position of the ball is in relation to the paddle. So if the ball was to the right or to the bottom of the paddle, we would stimulate more on the bottom side. If it was on the top, you know, it would be on the top side. And if it was in the middle, it'd be more on the middle side. And then we use a rate coding scheme to say how far the ball is from the paddle in the x-axis. So now you have x and y information given to the cells. We then sample these two regions and we say, you guys are going to be the motor regions. You will control the paddle going up and you'll control the paddle going down. And so what happens is that we stimulate the top region and then we wait a short period of time and then we sample the bottom regions. And then that information about do they want to go up or go down is actually fed back into the simulation that then controls the paddle to go up or go down. And so, yeah, we've, uh, if you do this over and over again and, you know, after about five minutes with some sort of reward punishment system, you will see that then the, the panel actually improve in its ability to continuously play the game and to, to move itself to, to intercept the ball. How do you encode like a, a loss function or some reward function, anything like that? Yeah, good question. So uh, I think this was one of the major uh, discoveries and breakthroughs that our, that our team made, which was that, so to take a few steps back, well, a lot of what we've done has been informed by the free energy principle, which is a theory that's been developed by Professor Carl Friston at uh, UCL. <clears throat> and the free energy principle essentially posits that all biological systems are wired to reduce the amount of what's called information surprise between their internal generative model and the observed world. So an example would be, let's say, take a baby, right? A baby you know, sees something fall. And we, we know this, they like to take things and they like to throw them down when they reach a particular age. What they're doing, and the first time they see it, it's a bit of a surprise and they're laughing. It's because it's surprising. The internal model has no understanding of this concept of gravity. So the way that they, they do 
better in the real world is to observe and to fit the model, right? That's why they pick up stuff and they throw it and they see it again and again. That's the way the brain is reducing the amount of surprise by coming up with this model. You and I, we all take for granted called gravity, right? We all know that if we take something and we, we drop it, it, it will fall to the ground. It's not going to float. And so this is what we, we biological systems are doing, right? We're always continuously working towards a, a stable system, you know, one where we internally can predict the world with very, very good detail. And when something changes, it's very uh, disconcerting. For instance, if I, you know, dropped something on the ground and it started to float all of a sudden, I'm sure you and I would be very surprised and go, wait a minute, what is going on here? Is this a prank? Is there some sort of anti-gravity well that's happening here? You know, you're now <clears throat> curious and forced to investigate this. So we use this phenomenon of using information as, or the amount of order and disorder or this information entropy as a way to drive the, the actions of these neurons. So what we, we, then, we then did was we said, okay, if the ball hits the paddle, and that's a good thing, we will give the neurons a predictable stimulation. So that can be like a sine wave where we just, you know, uh, stimulate the entire like sensory region in a, in a ordered fashion. And based on this theory, the free energy principle would say that is something that we would be moving towards. And on the other hand, if they do miss the paddle and they hit the back wall, we give them disordered information. So random noise, you know, it's something that has no pattern in its stimulation pattern. And yeah, that's the way to sort of discourage them because. So this, this, you guys had like an assumption that the, mm -hmm. the neurons would follow a model like that right like this yes. this was proven before like there's like this is this is this is interesting when you think about that like like there was no guarantee that the this patch of neurons would respond to that necessarily right yeah there was no th this is all based on a hunch really so we've observed this right like in in phenomenological studies like particularly in in the neuroscience space with with uh, models like, you know, active inference, you know, for instance, it's, it's, uh, the, some of the examples are like, for in, uh, what is it like, uh, tennis players, right? It's almost impossible to actually mm -hmm. really uh, return a serve from someone like Novak Djokovic, right? If you, if you calculate the speed that the ball is moving and the, the time that it takes for the photon to reach your eye to be processed and for the, <laughs> the amount of information to actually flow through to yeah. the muscles, it's too slow, right? So the, what's actually happening is that the brain is a, is predicting paths ahead of time, right? To, to try to minimize the amount of time difference. You know, and, and you know, the moment that something like weird happens, like if there's a bump on the ground and it bounces off really weird, weirdly, right? Then you see the surprise that the, these players have. So, it, it, you know, we've seen it anecdotally. We've seen it, you know, in a phenomenological, so like... It's almost like those patch of neurons, they have like a latent loss function for order for like ordered information and, and it's something like embed yes. and then that they want to get like this order information based on this the free energy principle they would like want to quote quote want to see order happening and order it's like a, a default uh loss mm. function to be optimized by them and then if you give it to them yep. they would like start optimizing for the order so we can like encode the yeah this is how we, this is really interesting yeah yeah have yep. have yep. other like have you seen any other research doing that or some there's any other labs or other people doing that 
Uh, no, uh, I mean, there's there's Carl Carl Friston has his own lab at UCL, and he's done a lot of it. And I mean, it, it's interesting because like Carl is actually probably the most cited neuroscientist on the planet. He has an H index of like. 220 or something ridiculous like this. So a lot of his work has come from the fMRI space where, you know, there's a lot of, it's very large, it's very uh, complex system to sort of disentangle. But, you know, I, I think we're pretty much the only one in the world who's actually shown it in this scale uh, on, a, on a simpler model that this is uh, a function that's happening. And this is something to bear in mind as well, right? This is uh, uh, something that a lot of computer scientists don't get as well, which is, if you had a CPU, right, and you turned it on with no instruction, it doesn't do anything, right? There is no programming. There's nothing. And even if you did load, if you did run an AI model, there are so many layers of programs that have actually initialized before you actually even run your program. You have your BIOS that launch, your BIOS or your firmware that launches, that bootloads your operating system, that then runs the TensorFlow, PyTorch library or whatever that then loads your weights that then executes. There are so many layers of prior programs that run on that, on, on that CPU or GPU for that matter. This biological system is all of that, right? There is some processing component to it, but there is also programming that's inherited in the genomic structure, right? This is the legacy that we, we that we inherited from millions of years of evolution. So, you know, it, it is somewhat... It's, it is somewhat difficult to say, right? The, is this actually a biological computer? Is the brain like a biological computer? And, I, and the, the answer would be probably yes, right? But it also has its own software. It has its own programming, right? It, it is able to function by itself without any need for any programmer to go in and write programs for it. So one, one thing that surprises me that I quite get the, the concept of the minimization of surprise, But this could be yep. like an emergent phenomenon from like a more complex right. structure like the brain or something like that. So this would be my first hunch. But yep. your results seems to point that this is like some kind of fundamental property of the mm. uh, the neurons themselves because you used... How, how many neurons did you use? So we used about 800,000 to a million neurons. Probably some have yeah. died along the way, but it's still a very large number, like, you know, for reference. But, the, you know, to bear in mind as well, these are flat monolayers, right? So the degree yeah. of connectivity is limited in the X, Y axis only. If there was a three-dimensional, like, structure, you know, you, your degree of connectivity, like, or possible uh, connectivity, like, goes up tremendously because now you're in the third dimension. So, you know, if we think that's somewhat comparable to a cockroach or, or a fly. Uh, yeah. But not quite. It's hard to say uh, until we actually start moving to three-dimensional structures like organoids or virtual three-dimensional uh, neural cultures. But you are right. It is a, Just, it is probably a emergent property because we know for a fact that a single neuron is not particularly very interesting. It just integrates the signals it gets and it yeah. either fires or it doesn't. Yeah, maybe one interesting thing thing to try would be to go to to the opposite direction, maybe trying to make one that's mm -hmm. even simpler, even less neurons, and a problem that's even simpler yep. than the Pong one is not a particularly simpler problem. You could try to do yep. like the same encoding that you did, you could try to do for like, let's say, uh, linear regression. And let's see if a simple 
type of regression could be done with less neurons and doing this stimulating this loss function for order that you guys made. And then we would see like if yep. a smaller sample side of neurons uh, would have the same property. I think the thing is we, we, we will be looking at that. So you, you do raise a good point. You know, what is the processing power of these neurons, right? Or not processing, but the intelligence of these neurons. The reason why we did this with 800,000 to a million neurons was we were, we were a small team, small lab, you know, small amount of funding. We needed to make sure that there was an effect, right? Um, before we start doing ablative studies. Yeah, so we, we, yeah. we decided to stack the cards in our favor by giving it more power than what it should have in order to get an effect size before, you know, we start to say how much, how much do we really need, right? Can we, is there a, is there a, a lower limit to this stuff? How many, like, in terms of encoding of the data that you did, like, how many pixels we are talking about, individual pixels, it's, it's able to, to send to that mesh that you guys did? Uh, yeah, so we don't actually send raw pixel data, right? So we send the encoded X, Y axis data. So that that is something that we are still we're working on on how do we do the pixel stuff. But as I said, right, nobody in the world has actually really done information encoding except for us. So that's still a very big unanswered question on how to do it. If you're talking like like about a, a matrix encoded in X and Y, like how many cells would that matrix have? Matrix? Oh, you mean data input matrix? Yeah, yeah. is that what you're trying to say? So yeah, okay. Yeah. So this is it, right? Like, what is a matrix to a neuron, right? That is one of the troubles, right? Coming, trying to bridge the AI machine learning with the with this stuff, right? Because it's an analog system, so it doesn't know or care what a matrix really is, if that makes any sense, right? Because let's say, for yeah. instance, let's let's go even even simpler. Let's say we have a vector. Uh, let's say a vector unit of two, and one one number is zero point five, and the other one is two. What does that mean to a neuron in an analog system, right? Are we encoding it as <clears throat> one being a, a stimulation cycle? But then the question is, what, what are we stimulating? What is, the, what is the time that we're stimulating with? You know, what's the frequency? This is something that is very, it's a, it's a, it's a weird concept for a lot of people to understand, which is that uh, a matrix or a tensor has to represent something. And perhaps it is representing time, right? which is a factor yeah. that no one really seems to really account for, which is really important for these biological systems to operate in. The people in the spiking neural network space actually kind of get this because that's kind of the power that they, they use with the spiking systems. But, you know, for instance, if you just did a, uh, an artificial neural network, even if you did like a, an RNN, this whole concept of time or, or this, this uh, mutation of the, the actual neurons in a time space is something that doesn't actually really get factored into it yeah but like if you have like the the image representation mm -hmm. of the the pong you need to have at least the yep. position of the of the things in in that relation like you need to encode that some somehow like the the image itself like you are just sending like the position of the ball and the player of the pong the thing. paddle like so this is a two yeah the paddle so it's just two yeah Two points, then. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, so, if you think about it, that's that's all you really need to know to play the game of pong, right? The, the position of the ball and the paddle itself. What you're talking about is the actual visual system, right? How do you take the pixels to extract that information? Yeah. 
So we, we haven't gone to that point yet. It's very complicated. It's very difficult. But, you know, if you did, even if you did say develop a CNN to do this, you could get an output, which is just two, two numbers, right? An X and Y position. Yeah. 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 An X and Y so, position so that you put there. Like, yep. You have to, so you I need think to have like is... two numbers for each one of those, right? Two numbers for the pedal and two numbers for the, for the bow. Yes. Unless, of course, you take a, what we've done, which is an egocentric view and you don't give, well, the system doesn't care about the position of the paddle. It just cares about the relative distance and position of the ball to itself. Then you can cut down the amount of oh, information required. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. so that's kind of like the way we look at it. It's, um, it's hard, right? It's very hard to like say, okay, well, how do we represent this? And I think this is the, this is one of the, one of the biggest challenges that we we're still, we have to face going forward, which is, you know, how do you take raw pixel stuff and, and feed it into this thing um, as opposed to making it easier by just feeding it the, the X, Y position. But having said that, we, we've done some very interesting uh, benchmarks as well, even against reinforcement learning that if you just fed the same amount of information and actually we've actually even done it with raw pixels, they just don't learn in real time because the amount of samples required is just too, too it's just too hard for them to deal with. If you look at the, at the space of the chip with the, the neurons, how many, let's say, discrete areas could you stimulate? So we probably could only do eight at the moment with the current chip that we're using. And, and in order to do this Pong, how many did you use? So what we did with Pong, we actually used, I think, four. So if I go back to this one here, you'll see, oh, you can't actually see because we blind ourselves to our own stimulation units. But in this uh, top region here, there are four stimulation points that we have. One, two, three, four. So we decide we stimulate these areas according to, is it very far up, you know, center or very far down? And the, I think the center might be split into two. The paper has a little more details about how, where we, how they're all split together. And what about reading this information? Like, how did you guys read the information back after, like, sending those those signals? Yeah, so the system give, gives us an API. We actually can just read the um, the spikes. So <clears throat> the the way it's done is that this is unfurled into a long a long vector with twenty two thousand units, and it's sent across every clock cycle. So. <clears throat> excuse me, the, the uh, multi-electrode array, you know, samples at 22,000 hertz. So um, the system preprocesses a lot of that. So we don't get everything, like every timestamp. But we, whenever there's a spike, it gets sent and that timestamp is based on the, the internal clock running at 22,000 hertz. Got it. In theory, you could have like these eight spots and use one for the uh, reward, let's say center of it where you're going to send it like let's say order or chaos according to the result that mm. you're reading and then doing the loop again right yeah you could so you you need to have an outside algorithm to do that right correct yeah it would just check actually it's not like anything complex in the end right because it you would just check the output of it read it and check to the the target if it's okay then send order it's not send chaos actually we only need like an evaluator let's say outside of it yeah and then just yeah exactly 
it's a very simple process, right? So I'm just going to skip ahead to this. The way we're thinking about how this fits in, in going forward in the future is that we really are seeing an evolution in the way we write programs. You know, you have your imperative programming, which is, you know, what we all do today, like C, C++, JavaScript, Python, so on and so forth, where every line is interpreted exactly as it is by the computer. Now you have deep learning, machine learning kind of thing, or even say support vector machines and so forth, or even your linear regression models. Uh, the, they're not really artificial intelligence. They're, what they are is they are statistical programming techniques where you have so many nodes, right? You have a, a network that is so large that it could technically be a universal approximator for any known function. The question then becomes, yeah. how do you, you know, program these nodes to then, you know, process it accurately, right? No one has time to do it manually one by one, so we invented backpropagation as a technique for that. So that's that's the other way where you say, ah, here's my architecture, here's where all my nodes look like, here's my data set, here's my loss function, and I'm just going to use backprop to like to tweak it. So that's you know a new paradigm that we have, and I you know I think it works really well for you know a lot of use cases, say like image recognition and so forth, or speech recognition. But I think this is the more interesting thing, which is the environmental programming aspect for us. It's very much similar to our reinforcement learning, right? Where the amount of effort is actually being spent on the AI gyms, right? Where you have an environment and you want to put your agents in it and you, you want them to interact with it. And as they interact, they learn how to do it. The difference here is that unlike reinforcement learning, we don't set models like DQN, A2C, PPO, and all those things, right? The model that we have is this biological substrate. And as you as you kind of very accurately posited, the program is very simple. You write a simulation, you say what is good, what is bad, and if, if the good thing happens, you can just provide a, a predictable stimulus back to the system or, or, or you know, uh, a punishment if it didn't. So the, the way we think about it, or the way I think about it going forward in the future is, you know, the way you train these neurons to sort of pre-train them before they get put into the real world for applications is through the, the development of these environments. You know, perhaps it's Pong, which is kind of like a stupid application, but maybe you could train something where it could navigate a maze and that could be equivalent to pathfinding in some sort of novel environment setting. Perhaps you could find one, uh, you could build an application which resembles you know, an exploration phase in the mine or whatever. And that could be then, you know, transported into a mining sort of application. I think the thing about it is is to realize that these neurons will rewire and reprogram themselves autonomously in order to solve the problem. But what you do need to do is you need to elucidate and say, what is this problem? What is the intended outcome that I want and what I don't want to happen? Just like a, just like a baby, right? You need to tell it what's a good thing, what's a bad thing. It, it can't just do it by itself. And regarding clock, let's say, let's say, especially we have like eight spots, let's say, uh, that we could be using. So, but eight, each spot we could be, instead of looking in the terms of like uh, distribution spatial, we can be looking at the time variable as well of the stimulus of each spot. Like what's the clock uh, yep. of a system like that? Do you guys know or still testing? Huh, that's a good question. What is the clock of the biological system? That's an open question. Some people believe it's 25 hertz, 
but it can't be 25 hertz because you know we do post we do we do things faster than that yeah that's a very good question but as far as we know the system that we have or the one that we've been using has been uh, clocked at 22,000 hertz that's its sampling rate the biological system we really have no clue what the actual clock speed is and, and i guess it's also it's hard right because of the analog system so it's all i guess relative yeah like in the clock of the results that you you read from the chip mm. Mm. Oh, the clock of the results that we read. So yeah, it's sampled at 22,000 hertz. So, you know, every 22,000, like 22,000 time of a second, the, the system will, will, will sample from the, from the surface and it will say, was there, was there a voltage spike or wasn't? Oh, sorry. It doesn't look for voltage spikes. It looks for the voltage differential. And based on the voltage differential, we can, you know, we can sample it. We can then see what the graph looks like, and then we can run a Fourier transform or perhaps something like that to turn it back into frequency domain and, and so forth. So this is again like it's like a you got to think about it like a micro like a microphone, right? Like we're sampling right now at forty four one hundred hertz yeah. or something like that. But what it is is that it is doing a, an exact digital replication of of what it receives the sound, but and it will be the same when we heard back anywhere else. But it won't be exact. So it won't be like how to describe it? It won't actually be the exact accurate representation, right? Because the exact representation is you sitting here listening to me or through some sort of analog recording device like a gramophone or something like that. The kind of reason why LP readers, LP yeah. players are still so so popular, right? Which is this analog versus digital thing. And, and to to like to the stimulation, there's any limit of, on the clock that you could use for the stimulation, like for the the pulses that you could do on the on the chip. On each on each spot of the chip. Yeah. So so again, we're limited to that clock speed, twenty two thousand hertz. The the stimulation again is is not particularly very strong for this system. Kind of the reason why we're building our own, so that we have a lot more control. The, the system we're working on will now then the future system will have sixty input, sixty output. So we don't really need the resolution that's required for read for for reading, and for us writing is more important. So we're actually sacrificing read for write kind of thing. But yeah, you know. It, it, you can stimulate roughly at the same same rate as well. Yeah, because like I think that could be easier to to do the the information in a in a serial form than in parallel mm. in a system like that. Yeah. Because you have the spatial dimensions, and you're going to be limited the amount of channels there, because it's going to be really hard to like. You are, you are already growing this number of channels pretty well, but you're going to find some limits yep. on that pretty soon. So oh, yeah. I think the future Absolutely. of a system so, like that will need to be like serial data input. Yeah, and, agreed. So yeah. so again, this is a this was an encoding scheme that just made sense to us and was easy to implement, right? It's not necessarily the best system. It's kind of the reason why we are building the platform so that people can experiment and, and try, as you said, this serial concept, perhaps. But... You know, suffice to say, this is, again, I admit this is a stupid encoding scheme. It's one that works, and this goes to show the power of the plasticity of the neurons, that even a stupid encoding scheme works. I particularly believe that the actual optimal system will not look like anything we we, we understand it will look like, right? It's kind of the reason why we are yeah. working towards this this concept of, can we use spiking fully spiking variational autoencoders to come up with more efficient encoding schemes for this system? So that we can say, take a 40 by 40 pixel, right? And uh, representation of this pog wall. Can we then use that 
with a VAE to get an output that's eight neurons, but a very uh, particular spiking pattern, because this is what spiking neural networks do, right? Which they spit out uh, spike trains, right? And, and, and the idea is if you actually do train a VAE to do this, you now have a very strong representation of the spiking activity in, in its posterior Z, Z space representation. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the yeah. most important so, thing though, it's, it's not even the question of the encoding, like at least for the, this until now, I think the, the reward and the, the simple idea of doing the, the predictable reward data versus non, it's the most important t- breakthrough because yes. the, so, the, this is what makes everything work because the, the, of course you can, you can, uh, think about any other way that you could have done better on the encoding, but just the fact that this yeah. part of it works, it's, it's mm. like, it's mind blowing. It's the most important yep. thing, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is it, right? Like it is probably the most important discovery we made, which is that you can actually push these neurons to go down a particular path to do like a yeah. computational task or an intelligent task. The, the, the thing that we really want to also show is that, you know, you can actually boost the performance. And I think what's really holding back the system is exactly that, the representation of the data, right? So to give you an example, uh, uh, and, and you can try this as well when you play the Pong game, uh, any game of Pong. The way it currently works is equivalent to me being blindfolded, right? And you shouting into me, into my ears, telling me, the ball is to the left or to the right of, you know, where I am. And the, you, the louder you shout, the closer it is. So that's how the neurons are essentially playing the game. The amount of information they're receiving is equivalent to that. You know, yeah. it has no visual system. It can't see the boundaries and it can't, you know, it, it receives a significantly less amount of information that you and I are getting when we watch the gameplay or when we are playing the actual game. Yeah, yeah. So I think with, with more data, yeah, yeah, you would need to show as well if the the regions would hold on a temporal type of stimulation, like if it could actually get different inputs in the same region with like like this serial type of thing and hold that information somehow, or or actually use it to see the patterns of it. I don't know why it would not be able to do that. Probably it can. Yep. Yep. But this is, this is still an unknown uh, in that to make it work. Because if you can make it work, if you can get serial data on each one of those, those uh, spots, then you would increase exponentially the amount of data that you could encode to, to send to it, right? It could be like. Correct. Yep. Huge, yeah. but you'll need to say you'll need some sort of encoding scheme, right? To encode for a for something into a serial is a serial stream of, of information. So that that is also something that that you have to think about, which is that you. So it, it's interesting because you have almost you almost have two systems running, right? You have the digital simulation system, which is in which is happening, but in a in a very deterministic. Uh, digital sense and you have the the analog biological system which is also happening but you know in a in a in an analog sense the question is how do you harmonize this digital stream of serial data coming in, coming off of the, from the simulation into the 
neurons and have it go back again. Because remember the the game will yeah. although sorry when I take that uh, I also take a, a step further the game will although the the, the simulation sorry the the system is running at twenty two thousand hertz is only running at a hundred hertz so the game only updates like you know one uh, one hundred times per second or so yeah yeah I think that like each step of maybe if you're gonna yeah you need to you need to have like serialized in the same like steps as the as the world you are simulating in maybe like. Because otherwise, yep. it can be like separated somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yep. like, what's the next step? You guys are thinking about having like you told me about like having like some developer engagement and trying to think like a prototype of platform. Like, how how far you guys are are building a platform like that? What what's what stage you guys are in? Yeah, that's a good question. So we've um, we started this project at the start of the year, and we're midway through at the moment. So one of the reasons why it's been hard to sort of build extra games and we have built like other environments like uh, the, the Chrome jumpy dinosaur game kind of thing and, and it's working at the moment is that a lot of it is hard-coded in C. So moving the environments and changing them is very like time-consuming and very fraught with uh, with with memory issues <clears throat> and risks. So hmm. we started to abstract that away into sort of more abstraction layers uh, and libraries and uh, we're working actually at the moment on a what's called the biological intelligence operating system, where the idea is that we will build APIs and SDKs that you can actually uh, program this and in, in program the environment that is using you know Python and JavaScript. And there will be uh, API hooks where we will say, here's the input coming up from the neurons into your program. Do whatever you want with it. And then there's a run loop that happens and you just do everything in that loop. Um, and at the end of the loop, you know, you just have to pass it out into these outputs. So, so th- that's the concept behind, you know, just make it very simple. You know, here's a stream of data coming out. And this will be something that, you know, levels of abstraction will need to be determined. Like how much do you want to have control over it? How much do you want to determine like, you know, where your motor regions are, where your simulation regions are and so forth. But the idea is that you would have very simple input going in, you do something with the data that comes up from the neurons, and then you feed back the transform information back at the end of that loop, and you just do it over and over again, and we handle the rest of it for, for you as a programmer. And yeah, this, um, is, this is interesting. And on top of that, the idea is that, so actually, I, let me go back to this as well. So, you know, for us, it's it's where we think it's going to go, actually, is uh, I didn't really share much with you, but this is actually our biological processing uh, unit device. It's uh, it's an all-in-one, so it contains a, a perfusion circuit life support system, and this is the breakdown of it. So there's actually a custom reader that we've built that has 64 channels of simultaneous read and write. It has its own CPU. We're using a, a K26 that contains an FPGA that we use it as well for, for our SQL processing and so forth. But most of the simulation is going to run on the actual um, A53 ARM chip. And... Um, on top of that, you know, we have a gas cylinder inside for, for gas mixing to make sure the CO2 levels are right. You know, we have heating elements that keep the temperature sort of like steady. And, you know, this is the, uh, this is, a uh, is it loading? Here we go. Here is an actual like device running, uh, in prototype. And you have these two chambers for the uh, fluid. So one circulates clean uh, media. The other one sort of like, you know, receives the dirty media and it goes around. This loop, and this is where the neuro, the the chip sits inside with the neurons, and the and the idea behind it is so this is the hardware, right? And what we really want to do 
is you want to bring the cost down to you know less than five thousand dollars so that it becomes affordable by comparison you know systems will cost at least like i don't know at least sixty seventy thousand dollars to 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 operate but we want to make this more affordable and accessible and then on top of that we want to build our own software layer to wrap around this right and so the idea is that each of these biological units will contain the the bios the biological intelligence operating system where we have all these layers of of code that we're writing but the key bit is this javascript python that we're working at the moment environments where you know you can have a, a hook there you can say here's the data coming in do something with it you know pipe it back out and you know we can do all of that for you and provide you the data back so that you know you can analyze it and say hey is it learning is it not learning or you know can i tweak it for for um a better performance to begin with, what we, we we're starting to look at as well is can we build 20 of these units, 20 or 30 of these units, <clears throat> and rack mount them and have them connect to the web um, and build a system, like an auto entry system and like a, a auto entry slash, slash cloud provisioning system where you can say, I would like to use the Hon1 NGN2 line for one month to do the experiment for one hour a day kind of thing. And uh, we, you know, you, you just have to say, you know, all right, here's, uh, here's my sh- credit card. It's going to be a $200 a month kind of thing. We take the order. We then grow the neurons for you. We keep them alive for you. And then when they're, when they're ready to, um, you know, when they have good spiking activity, we then say, do you want to upload your code now? And we'll run the experiments for you. And so that's the approach that we want to take to sort of make this more accessible because it's very hard to get started unless you have a laboratory setting, you have people who know how to like grow these neurons and so forth. So we, we abstract agree. away all the wetware layers. Yeah. We abstract all the wetware component. We say, yeah, here's a Jupyter like notebook or here's like a visual studio code uh, interface. Um, yeah. Here's the template that you get started with. You put your code inside these blocks and let us do the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Make I was about to ask you that if you guys are planning to do something like a cloud provision type of thing. Because it's the only way yep. they can see these, these scaling. Because people will not have enough capacity to maintain a system like that, and it would mess with the yep. results. Because it would increase the uncertainty. Because some things would happen because people are just not doing proper maintenance or just doing the the basics of the hardware, right? So yeah, and and. Yep. How do you see possible applications being built on top of that? That have you have you seen any path of of like possible apps? Yeah, you know, I think that's something that we started to look into. Like initially, it was like, oh, let's just build a biology computer. What does it do? Why is it good? It, it was still a mystery to us, right? It's, as the more we do this, the more we understand the strengths of weaknesses. So it turns out that this is, these systems are very good at real time autonomous autonomous operations. So, you know, things would be, that would be perfect with this would be, um, you know, off the top of my mind, robotics would be one of them where, you know, robots need to operate in the real world in real time. And the reason why we haven't seen very many of them at the moment is because they're too deterministic, right? You know, something drops in front of them, they have to recalibrate it. You know, you put them into a new setting, you need to like retrain them. And so reinforcement learning, you know, which was supposed to be very good for, for robotics hasn't actually really fulfilled its uh, promise yet because of this massive sample inefficiencies. So that's one. Cybersecurity is another one. So, you know, it turns out that the amount of time that's taken to just to, to determine whether an action is taken or not, you know, based on how much sampling that you have, is also something that's quite important. It didn't occur to me until I spoke to somebody who is uh, working in that space from Israel. 
And then I guess the other one that's kind of more relevant to, to my background as a medical doctor is, you know, in personalized medicine, right? So we now have the ability to take blood from anybody and turn them into stem cells and therefore like neurons. And these neurons are technically identical to you. They're genetically the same as the ones that we've taken that, that's in your head. So what it means is that we can actually use that as a way of testing drugs to see what the side effects would be like because everybody has slightly different side effects on these neurons before we give them to you. So rather than trialing an error, doing a trial and error of four or five different drugs, we can say, okay, we're going to do four and five, four or five of them on these neurons that you know we've grown from you. And the ones that work out, we'll just give it to you. So you don't have to suffer the side effects of like this trial and error process. Yeah. Uh, another yeah. avenue of that would be to try doing the same learning and mm -hmm. just try compounds on the neurons and see if any type of compound would accelerate the loop of learning of those neurons. Correct. I mean, it's also fascinating for us because we know that even with it, cultures that come from the same origin, Some of them play better than others, even though we control for all the factors. It's a big question of why. And one of the ideas, one of the things that we want to look into later on down the line is, can we do RNA-seq experiments, protein expressions? Is there a particular expression of a gene that is more activated in the higher playing cultures versus not? Because theoretically, if you do find that, you can now start to you know, develop cognitive enhancement drugs and so forth. So that's one aspect, and, you know, as you're saying, the compounds work as well. And I think the other one I forgot to mention, it's kind of the one that always slips in my mind, but it seems so obvious, is entertainment, right? If these neurons can theoretically learn how to control an avatar or a game, you now have the ultimate non-player character, one which is not scripted, one which actually has the ability to free roam and do stuff in a virtual world. And this is something that is very relevant in this whole growing craze of the metaverse universe or whatever they call it now, right? Where the idea is, You know, you are not just interacting with scripted non-player characters, but you are also interacting with people from the real world or virtual people, but ones with, have, with the ability to converse and plan and play like you would be playing in, in the real world. Yeah, I think that one, one thing that could be interesting as well would be actually some, some type of, at least in the beginning, to get like developers on board with some sign of, some type of tournament where mm. you can like create your own, let's say bot for a game, your own yeah. neurobot, and then other developers create their own and then you pit them against each other, the, yeah. the actual bots yeah. and to see which one would be the best of the best uh, fighting, like neural networks fighting each other, basically. <laughs> yep. Yep. And neural, could be, neural could be a, that. Uh, Yeah, kind of like that. So like everyone trains their, their own and try to see which one would be like the, 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 the champion of them all could be an interesting way to get like the initial engagement from like the community to, yep. to, and what about like, I mean, drones and controlling like things like cars and like moto control. Yep. Have you, have you guys look into that? Yeah, certainly. That's something that we're going to definitely going to have to like uh, look into going forward. And you know, the hope is with our new device, with the expanded 6060 sort of read and write, we'll be able to sort of better tackle that space. As I said right now, there's a bottleneck of like how much information that we can write into the neurons. So once we clear that hurdle, 
drones could be one you know robot robots like you know spot like quadrupeds would be one of them it would be an application you know self-driving cars perhaps as well having said that i think self-driving cars are almost there it's just more of the the weird what do you call it the long tail events you know the very odd non-captured by statistical like things that you know they still need to get over and i'm not sure if our system will do that but we'll see it could very well do it in the future but yeah that's something that we you know we're going to start to have to look into going forward yeah 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 there's a lot of like in what type of task do you think that a system like that would be better than doing like the transformers or new well i think the 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 key would be robotics right or anything in the real world like a, a transformer is really great if you if you give it like i mean the the latest craze right now is dally 2 right like he, here's a natural language thing spit out an image there's no time constraint with yeah. that. You can do it as fast or as slow as you want. It's not aut- autonomously like operating in the real world. You know, you can't ask it, hey, Dali 2, make me a cup of coffee. It could spit you an image of what a coffee looks like, but it's not going to like sequentially grind the, uh, grind the beans, pour the water, plunge the thing and all these things. These are all things that require a significant amount of, of pre-planning. I mean, Yan LeCun actually had a really great tweet last year. He's like, Yes, we love these transformers. They're all great. But and we talk a lot about human-level intelligence, but we don't even have dog-level intelligence, right? If you think about, or even a fly, right? A fly is so good at navigating its world and finding its objective and so forth. And it's only got 100,000 neurons and sips milliwatts of power, or actually even microwatts of power. So you know, these are things that, you know, I, I think we, we need to start thinking about what this concept of AI really is, you know, is it, is it really transformers, right? Because transformers, again, as I say, it, it's a statistical programming technique. All we're doing is we're taking one, one network and we're, we're gluing it to another one. And we're using the, the abstraction Z space uh, representation to float information from one to the other. Is that really AI? I don't believe it is actually. And I'm not sure if we actually have even really like actually discovered what true artificial intelligence is. Because I think that there's a significant sort of space that needs to be explored, which is the symbolic reasoning that needs to come into place. And Gary Marcus talks a lot about this, right? Where even yeah. the best reinforcement learning agents using deep learning recently lost this game. I can't remember what it was to a symbolic learning agent, which is kind of surprising, right? Given the amount of hype that we keep getting about, yes, you know, AI is solved. We just need bigger networks and more data. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. So, uh, We're heading to the end. I have some couple of last yep. questions. So first, what advice would you give to someone starting like a deep tech slash hard tech startup today? I, I think the advice would be be open to new ideas, to be <clears throat> open to also pivoting or not pivoting, but to like uh, learn along the way. I mean, Deep and hard tech is, is that for a reason, which is that we haven't discovered it fully. And there will be things that were not foreseen when you started out with. Like, for instance, we had no idea what a biological computer looked like, what its strengths, what its weaknesses were. We were still comparing them to, like, GPUs, right? When we realized, wait a minute, they're nothing like GPUs. They're, in fact, nothing like a CPU. They, they do things very differently. And then that, that forces you to then think about it in a slightly different way. Yeah. And what did surprise you the most after starting this company like what did you thought and were wrong or or you change your mind about when you started 
So it, it is, there are two things, really. I didn't think we'd get this far, honestly speaking. It was more of a, <laughs> oh, yes, we got some money from, from the guys, Blackbird. Uh, we'll try our best to make this work. You know, still a very high chance of self-failure, right? Because we, we, it took us three or four attempts to actually get this to work, right? Because we couldn't figure out what's the best way to like encode and decode information, let alone what was the reward or punishment scheme kind of thing. So I, I'm kind of surprised that we actually managed to get this to work. But secondly, as well, it's also the surprise of, okay, now we've built it, what can it actually do? And, and I think it is, it, it didn't occur to me to think about it this way, right? But essentially what we have built is, is something equivalent to a programming language, right? It's like asking Guido, hey, what is Python good for? He'd be like, it's good for running loops. It's good for like holding variables, maybe a few <laughs> class functions and so forth. And, and that's pretty much it. What people have been asking us really, and some of the questions that have come through is like, what are the applications? And it's very hard to say what they are because essentially, you know, we have the, like a programming language. It's really up to the people to take what we have, yeah. uh, you know, in collaboration with what, what we know and how we can program them to, to develop better systems, right? To apply them into, into various verticals. So for instance, you know, Python can be used for sending emails or something like that. Now it's an email bot, right? So your application is now email. But then, you know, you can also use it for machine learning. Well, now your application is AI. But by itself, it is just merely a programming language. This is the same thing as what we are working on with our platform. By itself, it's programming language. It's what will people use it for that I think is going to be most important and interesting question. Cool. And yep. do you have a timeline to have, like, this thing been tested from for outside people? Yeah, so we are actually looking in Q4 to launch an early alpha preview. So we have a few uh, industry partners that we've, we've uh, you know, um, have reached out to us and we've been talking to them about using this. So, you know, we're, we're going to start doing that early alpha primarily to just work through like the kinks because it's going to be a, it's going to be a weird one for us working with external parties. You know, there will be some sort of SLAs that will have to be signed off and so forth. But, you know, having said that, it's still very like experimental technology. So, we don't even know what the service level agreements are going to look like as well uh, going forward. So we'll hopefully be able to work that out along the way with, you know, more tolerant and more patient partners um, who understand the experimental nature of this technology. Okay. And what book recommendation do you have for our listeners? Book recommendations? Honestly, I can't really say. I actually haven't read much in a while, except for, I guess, there was a very good book that I read many years back the story of gene and tech and i think that was something that was very fascinating for me uh primarily because i i haven't quite felt that until uh, working on my own company or you know a few other ones along the way but like there is a significant lack of core hard and deep tech that i feel like it's coming through the pipeline a lot of the technologies we see today big ones that have you know raised amounts of capital and, and valuations and 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 so forth have seemed to be very iterative, right? They're using old technologies like some relational database yeah. management systems and pairing it together with some sort of like application, like, you know, suffice to say, I guess the biggest, last biggest one was like Uber, right? I mean, Uber was practically a GPS receiver with its database and an app. And I guess yeah. they all put them together and you got something really big, but did they really develop anything that was like completely novel? Not quite. So, and I, this is the reason yeah. why I guess deep tech is so interesting to me. And, and what stimulated my interest was through this book about the story of Genentech, which I think to this day, when, when, when asked, Eugene Kleiner still thinks that that was the 
Also, no, not Eugene Klein. John Doe, I think he did the investment in Genotech. Still thinks that it was by far the most like impactful and the most important investment he's ever done in his life and his career because, you know, the sheer amount of impact and technological revolution that Genotech brought to the biotech space was, was tremendous. Yeah, I think that we are, we are kind of like mining the possibilities of current technology. So a lot of the startups are just mining what you can do with like the, in the search space of the possibilities mm. of the actual technology. Uh, so the Ubers and what we can do once we have like the, the iPhone and the GPS and then there's like mining this wow. But there's a limitation yep. that's at some point there's a limitation of what all the possibilities in this space. There's maybe nobody knows the size of it, but definitely there's a limitation that there on the what it's possible in that space. And it needs to be expanded mm. if you want to have like more applications and other types of startups. Because at some point, like the same way that the like when the smartphones appear that you open up a lot of new possibilities. Uh, you you will need to have like other types of tech. So this is this is why I think deep tech is so important as well. It's because like yeah. the, the number of other things that could happen because of your expanding the frontier of what's possible actually. Yep. Yeah. I mean it's amazing right to think about it. The iPhone is like 16 years old now. Or the first iPhone. I think it was 2006. And uh, there are kids out there today who have lived in a world where there's never not been an iPhone. So as a piece of technology, smartphone mobile is actually very mature. How much further yeah, we're going to get mature, with, you yeah. know, eking out performance and, and, uh, and novel, yeah. novel applications. I don't, I don't foresee a very rosy one for that. Uh, and you know, we're reaching three nanometers now with, with CPU technologies. I mean, we have quantum on the horizon, but quantum has had decades of funding and, and, you know, we're still saying it's quantum supremacy is coming, right? It's coming. So I think it's it's time, you know, as an industry, we start looking at other spaces. You know, biology is one of them, perhaps. You know, there's potentially photonics. There's yeah. a, potentially a bunch of uh, interesting applications in DNA computing and uh, storage and so forth. So I think this is something that, you know, we, we need to start looking at. Otherwise, uh, we end up with just techno mostly technological stagnation. Yeah. And my next, my last one is like, if you are able to send one message to all humans on Earth, what would you say? <laughs> what would I say? I, I would say uh, we need to get our priorities straight. You know, we have issues like global warming. You know, we have an increasingly destabilized world. You know, we all need to start thinking and working together, right? Enough of the stupid, like, apps and, you know, enough of the stupid, like, uh, services. What we need to start thinking is, you know, how do we build technologies that will ensure survival of the human species? Be it like, you know, Elon's thing about going to Mars, perhaps that's one, one way. But we also need to build like, you know, better, uh, more sustainable technologies for, for computing. Um, so we don't use so much energy, better green energy. And also, you know, I'm a bit of a pessimist, but, you know, perhaps a plan B. What if no one can get this like uh, climate change thing, uh, it, it sort of like reducing the amount of climate change in the world will just heat up. Well, we need to start developing technologies and, and ways to learn how to cope with a, with a warmer world, right? These are technologies and, and thinking that we all need very smart people to come together and think and to also, you know, have the people who have the capacity to fund them to fund these projects. You know, we don't need another delivery app. We don't need another scooter app. What we really need are, you know, hard technologies that will solve these problems. 
Yeah, I don't remember who said that that this phrase. I need to check it out later. But like the smartest people in my generation are just spending the intelligence tricking people into clicking in links 100% of the time. So I think that we need more smart yep. people doing other doing other things than just tricking people into clicking in, in, in ads, basically. Yep. Thank you so much. Absolutely. It was a really fun conversation. There's so many possibilities of what you guys are doing. Still the beginning, it's day one yet, but there's yep. like a a possible bright feature. Like, yep. thank you so much. Um, thanks, Ed, Bob. All right. Have a good one. Yeah. Bye. Thanks for listening to the deep tech show. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe. So you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. Follow the podcast on Twitter at deep tech daily to keep updated on what's next.